Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out. It's the final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. First time I've hosted it in a while. First time I've been able to do that in a while. The, the show where on the weekend we go through the history of our great game of cricket. Jeff, hello to you. You're sitting outside this evening. I can detect through the Zoom screen. Yes, I'm taking advantage of the fact that it's the first evening where it's been warm enough to sit outside. It's also the last night of lockdown in Melbourne. Last night of lockdown, which means that probably as of next week, there'll be far too many cars driving past to sit out here and record. So I'm going to take my one opportunity. You only get one shot. Do not miss it. Here I am. How do you feel about lockdown ending? I know when I've been through it a few times, you know, different points here, and uh, Mm. it's not always felt that comfortable, especially late last year over here when, when lockdown was easing, when the virus was rampant. I know it's not quite the same in Victoria right now, but how how are you feeling about uh, the world coming back to normal relatively tomorrow? Mostly positive in that I think we went past 90% first dose today, past 70% double. So we're pretty well set up for it to be uh, there, there will still be some damage, um, but it'll be a lot less than it might have been. So it, it, it doesn't feel frightening in that way in that, you know, hopefully within a pretty short space of time, the, the case numbers start going down rather than up, as we have already seen north of the, of the Murray. And I think we've got some correspondence, actually, don't we? One bit here from Dave Brown in relation to the 1913 USA tour that we went into in some depth on last week's rather loose story time. I don't really remember what we talked about, but I know that we were 
a fair way out there. We were trying to figure out how an Australian team got to the USA in 1913 when there hadn't been an Ashes trip. They weren't coming back from England. How did this happen? Um, and we were talking about Edgar Ernie Maine and his place in that team. Well, Dave has been digging up the Narracourt Herald of the 25th of April 1913, as you do, uh, in which it says, as he sent to us, It has been definitely arranged that an Australian cricket team shall visit America this year and it will probably consist of Trumper, Bardsley, McCartney, Herbie Collins, Arthur Maley, etc, etc, including Ernie Maine. It is probable a couple of Victorians will be selected. Mr E Maine applied to the Board of Control for International Cricket to take a team to America, but the request was refused and Mr Maine has organised a private team. So it was a private team that still got first-class status to go and play the Philadelphians or the gentlemen of Philadelphia over there to, I guess, make some coin. I think we need to get the record corrected too because in his obituary that I was reading through last week, it talks of that tour being in 1914, not 1913. So Hmm. if we want to get... I think that might have even been in the Almanac. We should be so lucky... Is that having been in the Almanac? Because that Ooh. will allow us to submit to Lawrence the errata. an error. The errata. Mm. Oh, wow. I'm definitely going back to that. I'm, everything crossed that was in the Almanac and we can get mm-hmm. a change from 1914 to 1913 <laughs> in his obituary from, you know, whatever year it was he died. I think he died in the, in the 1940s, didn't he? Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll dig back into that. That's my homework. All right. All right. And, and there was another piece of correspondence that I want to bring up to the front of the show just because it was lovely um, from Timothy O'Meara, who sent in a 383 that was part of a triple header, three different people who sent in the clue 383. And as it happened, Timothy's nerd pledge, his idea had been on the show a few months ago. It was about Ian Cullen, Mad Dog Cullen who took test bowling figures of three for 83, a bowler who played a little bit in the Packer sort of era in the late 70s. Proud man, Catter. And so Timothy O'Meara sent this in saying that, you know, he, he was glad to hear about the number, about what else we did with the number, even though he knew that what he had intended had already been done. Uh, he said, my earliest test memory, despite having been taken to VFL Park for the super tests by my dad when I was four, was the 1982 Boxing Day test where Ian Botham took the final wicket of Jeff Thompson. Ian Botham was involved in the 383 answer that we did on last week's show. Timothy says, I got my first cricket books that summer and fell in love with the game, which still has me watch cricket from anywhere in the world on streaming services or under a tree somewhere at a Dandenong DCA ground (laughs) watching my brother play. Listening to the podcast on Saturday made me wonder whether I attended that short day of cricket at the MCG in 82. So I asked my dad and he said we were not there. I must have been watching on TV. But after discussing why I asked and after I explained about Nerd Pledges, podcasts and Ian Botham, I had to show dad where podcasts were on his phone and we added his first one to his podcast library thus we have a new subscriber welcome to timothy o'meara's old man who is uh listening into the show on his own for perhaps the first time this week yes that all but confirms it's andrew o'meara must be his brother who i played against when i was a kid in the danny district cricket association i don't i don't imagine andrew would necessarily remember me i reckon he might have been a year my junior, something like that. So we may have played against each other every other year, but he was a a gun, left-handed opening bat, I reckon, the stuff you remember from when you were a kid. But yes, I I, I hope to one day at some point in my life get to 
um, spend some time back watching the DDCA again. Jeff, we've um, talked on the on the show in, in recent months around players that have been recruited to Melbourne recreational cricket for this summer. Well, I'll have you know that Endeavour Hills, my club, have been busy in the off-season. Originally, we thought that Tilakarakna Dilshan was going to be going to Mulgrave Cricket Club to captain there um, this season. Well... He's not. He's coming to Endeavour Hills. I don't know how this has happened, but there were reports that Mulgrave and Endeavour Hills were going to merge, which I resisted. I do not have the urge to merge, but that's now off the table, and we've somehow pinched their captain coach or something like that. He's playing for Endeavour Hills. And Lahuvaru Teramana, who we've spent God knows how much time talking about this year, the Sri Lankan opener, he's also coming by for four rounds in November. So when I'm back in Melbourne, Jeff, we have to visit Endeavour Hills Mm -hmm. and get back to the southeast. You've been there with me before when we did a sort of a a live commentary of a game that Brett Delidio was playing in, I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure, a few years ago, a T20. And Uh, Sean Grigg. And Sean Grigg, that's right. So we might find an excuse to get out to Endeavour Hills. And it's not in the DDCA for the senior cricket. Well, some of the grades are, but uh, certainly in the juniors, they still play in that competition. So I'm glad it's represented on the final word via Tim. All right, Jeff, that's our intro done, uh, which means it's time for uh, a lot of today. A lot of... Mm, nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge, yes, it's the game of nerds The game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page Here's how it works They help us fund the show by sending us contributions Not normal round numbers, but irregular numbers Numbers with character Numbers that mean something when they relate to cricket And we have to work out what the relationship is First number, off the rank today Comes in from Anna Forsyth our Canadian correspondent, it comes in Canadian dollars in the very handsome amount of $19.10, 1910. Well, there's no clue here, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff. So that gives you a lot of space to work with. 1910, we love you, Anna. So, look, I thought maybe initially. I did wonder whether there was something in Canadian dollars that that would link to Canada or Canadian dollars get marked sometimes as CA, so it could be a Cricket Australia reference. could be CAD, could be someone who's a CAD because CAD (laughs) is sometimes Canadian dollars. But I think it's just Canadian dollars because Anna lives in, as Tony Abbott would say, Canada. So went away from that. Initially, of course, I had to go and have a look at Stephen Finn because Anna Forsyth is somewhat obsessed with Stephen Finn to see if there was a 1910 link. There isn't. Stephen Finn bowled 190 scoreless overs in Test cricket. So had it been 191, that could have been our number, but no, 190. 195 first-class batting innings, not 191, almost. 199 list-day wickets, almost. And in 16 overs of Pakistan Super League cricket, Stephen Finn has a bowling strike rate of 19.2, not (laughs) 19.1. Couldn't find anything there. And I thought, well, it's a four-digit number. We don't often get those. Why don't I use it to go back to 1910? And why don't I see, because Middlesex, Anna's very obsessed with Middlesex. I was like, what were Middlesex up to in the year 1910? And so I tracked down a February issue of a Cricket, a weekly record of the game, which was the magazine that was kicking around in 1910. Delighted to report that the first page I flipped to, there was a large headline reporting of all Bermuda's easy victory over the Philadelphians. There they were again. <laughs> they, were in, they were in Bermuda this time playing 
a, a series over there. They won the first couple and then got beaten by the All Bermuda team, that powerhouse of cricket, which may be something that Aaron Sorkin picked up on at some point. But looking for things connected to Middlesex, I found something, Adam, which I thought must be read because it pertains... It, it still feels very relevant today, 111 years later. Here you go, strap in. This is in the um, the gossip column called, called Pavilion Gossip. <laughs> Readers of cricket can hardly be unaware of the war that is waging in the cricket world over the proposal to divide the county championship. <laughs> The first response to Lord Hawke's circular has been an almost unanimous refusal on the part of the county committee to support the scheme, tempered only by recommendations from some of them to amend the existing arrangement in different respects. Meanwhile, those who are advocating an alteration, mainly on the lines mentioned by Lord Hawke, express confidence that it will be affected in the near future. An impression certainly exists that the dislocation of county cricket, which must result from the visit of two colonial teams in 1912, will lead to a large reduction of the principal county's fixtures, and that as it comes to be better understood, the divisional scheme will recommend itself as the best means for averting <laughs> a possible fiasco, and so will be at least afforded a trial." The flood of controversy that this proposal has let loose has covered every real or imaginary evil of modern cricket. Many of the writers bowling very wide of the question at issue. The alternative remedies for a defective system of conducting a competition have ranged from fancy methods of scoring, LBW amendment and adjudication on drawn games right down to covered seats, cheap refreshments and a band at the interval. But why not living pictures and a flip-flap? If I may finish here, the Yorkshire County uh, CC Committee have decided to approve of a trial being accorded the scheme in 1912, subject to the method of scoring being that a win should count one point and drawn and lost games should be ignored. And Essex have expressed themselves in favour of the project. Uh, The counties which have not supported the project uh, include Middlesex. So even all the way back then, same old stuff, circling the they ball. Were, they were still fighting about two divisions back in, in 1911. And Middlesex didn't support what happened last week with the rejig. So the, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the story they're briefing out there. Uh, I love the idea that Yorkshire wanted one point for a win, no points for anything else. Yep. Nothing. Bugger Nothing up. for a draw. But, you know, no, no, there is no second prize. Mm-hmm. Second prize is a bucket of shit, as they'd <laughs> say at, at local footy clubs when I was growing up as a kid. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm glad I know that. Uh, thank you, Anna Forsyth, for giving us the opportunity to go back to 1910. Uh, I like that um, it was referring to 1912 there, which was the... Uh, the tour that, that Ernie went on, mm-hmm. the triangular series between England, South Africa and Australia that we talked about last week with Ernie. His, uh, I think his first test match was on that. Uh, so we, we, uh, yep. we, we find our way back there again. Anna Forsyth, 1910, what a legend. Next up, Jeff, 243, GBP from Simon Ward. There was no clue there either, which meant, given that's the kind of number, that brings this kind of song. Oh, Jeff, how I love seeing numbers in the 240s without a clue. My eyes lit up. It was like a half volley just outside the off stump, knowing it was fertile for 
uh, dusty old bastard or for a dusty old bastard. And then up bobs Fred Barrett of Nottinghamshire. He was another man who had to wait, as many of our dusty, dusty old bastards have had to over the journey. Um, he picked a pretty ordinary time to start his first class career in 1914, which meant that you know he had to miss the next five years or thereabouts. But he did start in spectacular fashion as a 20-year-old at Lords against the MCC. He took eight for 91 in his first innings of first-class cricket and then took a fifer in his first championship game as well. So all told, as a 20-year-old in 1914, he took 115 wickets at 21 with 10 fifers. So I reckon it's reasonable to conclude that he would have played test cricket during the war. I mean, if that's the way he started as a 20-year-old, apparently he was quite quick. It's a bit of a story of, of what could have been. Instead, when he came back in 1919, it took him a little while to, to get back to his best. And it was until 1922 before he reached 100 wickets again, uh, taking 109 at 16. So he was like back in business from there and a pretty consistent operator through the mid-1920s. And leading the attack until Harold Larwood rocks up and uh, naturally uh, he, he was uh, sort of playing second fiddle uh, to Larwood, which extended to national honours as well. So by this point, uh, Freddie Barrett started batting as well and he had some success, made a couple of first-class tons. He was a bit of a, I suppose you would say, a bowling all-rounder at that point. And towards the end of the decade, the end of the 20s, he has his benefit year in 1928 and smashes it, making uh, 1,100 runs at 29, which isn't bad for an opening bowler, and taking 114 wickets. So that was enough to finally, at age 35, get his call up to the England team in 1929, where, I mean, they were a powerhouse at that point, Nottinghamshire, with Larwood, Vos and Barrett leading the attack. Uh, and he picked up in 1929, 129 wickets at 21 and got himself a test match against South Africa in that summer at Old Trafford. Larwood was injured, so, so Barrett came in for his county teammate. And his analysis in that game is pretty good. First innings, 10 overs, four maidens, one for eight with the new ball. And second innings, 20 overs, seven maidens, one for 30. I mean, I, I'd call that effective economical, efficient, all the rest. But he was dropped immediately when Larwood was available for, for the next test, which seemed altogether cruel, really. But he still did enough in that test to, to make sure that he got himself on the boat for the winter of 1930. I suppose, Jeff, most people did, given they were going to both the West Indies and New Zealand concurrently. I mean, pretty much mm. everyone got a Guernsey on, on those two trips. We've talked a lot about the West Indies side of the ledger with Andy Sandham's 325 and, and Wilfred Rhodes making a comeback, but not so much the New Zealand portion of the trip. They played four test matches over there but unfortunately Barrett couldn't really deliver in those test matches took just three wickets didn't make a half century and and that was kind of that and he was debilitated by that experience by reports he went back to knots in 1930 and you know having played for England he, he it was dispiriting that it didn't quite work out he took just 51 wickets that that season which sounds like a lot in I guess 2021 money but wasn't that many wickets given how many games they played uh, back in the 30s and he was 36 years of age by that point too so it wasn't surprising when it all kind of wound up for him in, in 1931 but all told uh, 1224 wickets at 23 over 6,000 first-class runs, a highest score of 139 in England. Test cap, 2-4-3, Fred Barrett. Definitely dusty. Uh, we've been asked during the week on the Discord page what the definition for a dusty old bastard is, and I had to explain that it it wasn't a strict definition. It was the constitution. It was the vibe. Um, it was didn't play a lot of international cricket, but there's no strict cutoff. It's It's more like 
how much have you never heard of this person? Um, well, how much can you expect that mm. those you're about to talk to on the show will never have heard of this person? It's it's more in in those sort of areas, and there's 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 very much a vibe, a dusty vibe, playing on one half of the split tours. You know, at the uh, uh, at the end of the 1920s, that feels dusty to me. All right, that's our DOB for the week done. Thank you, Simon. Uh, Anthony Radford's next up. Uh, he's been a pleasure in the past, uh, and he is again here, Jeff, with 1390, another very generous pledge. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, bless yourself and your lineage for generations to come. If you have a lineage, you may not have a lineage. You don't have to have one. No pressure. 1390, well, Roger Harper did make 1,390 runs across the two formats that he played in international cricket. Uh, but I've gone somewhere else with this. Mm, regular listeners may know that Adam and I are very interested in the exploits of JJ Ferris, who did a fair bit of bowling in the 1800s. So just tuck that behind your ear um, because that <laughs> may come out a little later. But let's start with a guy called Johannes Jacobus Kurtzi. And you'd be surprised okay. to find that he played for South Africa. Uh, very, I'm sure that, <laughs> sure that came out of the blue. Now, played a couple of tests at home against Australia in 1902 and one more in England in 1907, and that was it. So fits with the DOB, but so that's not exactly why I'm getting there. Now, this is quite interesting. <laughs> um, this, this may tally with a, a, an interest of yours, Adam. David Frith writing about Curtsy probably in the 80s, I think, in Western Cricket Monthly, described him as, quote, one of the fastest bowlers in the history of the game. Now, having a look at the scorecard for his first test, you know, it looks good. He bowls Victor Trumper for 18, Sid Gregory bowled for one, Clem Hill out for six, stumped. Stumped. <laughs> One of the fastest bowlers in the history of the game, uh, which Frith says while also saying that the keeper used to come up to the stumps when Curtsy was bowling. So join the dots there. <laughs> this is it, isn't it? I mean, I, I was. Uh, people get very angry when I. When, well, actually, Hypercourse, the great man, uh, often quote tweets something I put up last year. It's a video that declares that Harold Larwood, the fastest man of all time, bowling it up to 70 miles an hour, <laughs> which, uh, which when you remind people, that, well, if that is to be accurate, when you remind people that many women bowl uh, in excess of 70 miles an hour, it makes people very fucking angry. <laughs> yeah. So keep her up to the stumps for Curtsy, who was the fastest in the world, apparently, um, at the time. That's how fast he was. I got to curtsy because in a first-class match in 1906 for Western Province, he took match figures of 13 for 90, Anthony Radford's number, against Orange Free State. He took a 5 for and then an 8 for. So that's what got me on to curtsy to begin with. Then I noticed that when he took that 13 for 90, he was playing under the captaincy of Tip Snook, another former favourite <laughs> of the show, uh, one of the many tips getting around at the start of the 20th century. And so in digging around very early South African players, I came across a couple of players who I just had to bring up for reasons that will become apparent. What were their names? Flui Dutoit and Clarence Wimble. What a, what a pair of monikers to start Flui off with. Flui de toit like a toiga. Exactly, de toit like a toiga. Flui de toit and Clarence Wimble. Clarence Wimble. Hello, I'm Clarence Wimble. I mean, extraordinary and more extraordinary when I started looking at their career records. Clarence Wimble 
and Fluey de Toit played in the same test match in 1892. Clarence Wimble made one first-class appearance before that in a Curry Cup match where he, you know, made some runs, made a half-century. And then a year later played in th- these three jazz matches, basically, against Walter Reed's eleven for various South African state sides or, or provincial sides that had either 15 players or 18 players or whatever it might be. His run of scores through these matches was 5, 19, 7, 1, 19 and 10. And that was enough to get him picked for a test match. <laughs> in which, you'll be shocked to learn, he makes a pair. So he's batting at six and makes a duck. He, he's, he's a specialist bat, doesn't bowl. He gets dropped to number 10 for the second innings and he's out for naught, stumped. <laughs> so, and that was that. That's the test career of Clarence Wimble, um, who, who ends up with a record that says zero deliveries bowled, zero runs scored from two innings. That's his test career. But his entire first-class career is two matches – the one that he played in the Curry Cup and then the Test match, and that's it. And his miscellaneous career only has those three jazz matches against the WW <laughs> Reed 11. So as far as we can tell from what's available, didn't play cricket outside that and yet somehow managed to, to get in for a Test match, right? Now, the Test match that he plays in, it's one of those tests where almost all of the overs are bowled by two bowlers for England, one of whom is JJ Ferris and the other is a guy called Arthur Dick Power. The art of dick power. It's just an extraordinary thing to be just ploughing through the South African lineup. There were a, a handful of overs bowled in one innings by a third bowler. But, you know, aside from that, those guys did all the bowling, took all the wickets. And the only thing funnier than Clarence Wimble being dismissed by dick power is the fact that there was a guy in this team named Fluey de Toit. Now, if you want to visualise this, Fluey, hello, Flu- my name is Fluey. Fluey is spelt F. L-O-O-I. That's how you spell Fluey. Dutoit, two separate words, D-U-T-O-I-T. Fluey Dutoit, whose <laughs> real name was Jacobus Francois, who that ends up being Fluey. I guess today it's Faf. Back then it was Fluey. And he's even better than Clarence Wimble because his entire first-class career consists of this test match. That's... <laughs> That is the only first-class match he ever played, right? He ended up, he batted down at the bottom of the order. He was not not out in the first innings and two not out in the second innings. So his overall first-class career record is two innings, two not outs, two runs, and he took one for 47 when he got a chance to bowl as they lost by an innings. So he did get Walter Reed out, who was the captain of the England team. So that's something, you know, that's, a, that's part of his record. But what makes it even better is this. Because he'd never played first-class cricket before, he got into the 11 for this test match on the basis of one of those miscellaneous games against the WW Reed 11, in which he played for Orange Free State, who had 22 players <laughs> up against the Reed 11. That had eleven. Fluey, he did. He did great. He took four for forty-four. He made eighteen and twenty in the two innings with the bat. He should have been batting higher up in the South African Test eleven, frankly, because they got absolutely flogged. But what makes it especially great is that in this match of twenty-two versus eleven, JJ Ferris bowling against them in the first innings has an analysis in one innings of thirteen for thirty-one. He took thirteen <laughs> wickets in the innings. <laughs> 
10 of them bold, uh, including players called Bourdillon and Schummelkettle and, and other glorious names. This scorecard is a thing of beauty. It goes all the way down the page and it's just Bold Ferris, Bold Ferris, Bold Ferris, Bold Ferris, Bold Ferris. Stumped, Bold Ferris. <laughs> 10 bold, one stumping, two catches in his 13 for 31 um, that he took from 25 overs up against these blokes. In the midst of which, Fluey Detroit stood out so well with his uh, innings of 20 and 18 that he played a test match. That's it. That's all he ever played. But he did play that test match. Staggering. Staggering. I mean, I knew it was all a bit all a bit rough shot early doors in South African cricket. I didn't realise to what extent. I mean, you pretty much just got a game if you picked up a bat and ball. It's staggering in a way, though, as successful as, as successful as they were in the 20 years that follows that. But uh, anyway, there you go. That's uh, 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 Louis de Toit isn't a name I'll forget in a hurry. Thank you, Anthony Radford, for giving Jeff the opportunity to tell the story. Next up, we have another one in pounds from Max Heaton, 5 88. And again, it's without a clue. We love that when there's no clue. It makes it easier for us to have some fun. I'll take this one, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Originally, I was thinking I would tell the story of Ben Holyoke, who wore cap number 588 for England in Test cricket. But I realised that Mark Butcher did such a good job of that uh, when he spoke to us on the program back in April that if you want to learn more about Ben Holyoke's career, you can do so with Butch. Instead, I wanted to talk about a record which may never fall, which I'd never thought about, let alone looked up. And it goes back to the July of 1936, the 27th of July 1936 to be precise. We're going back to Manchester for the second time in the show. India playing a test match against England, uh, the second of their series. On day one, all pretty chilled, all pretty standard. India all out for 203. Headley Verity takes a forfer. And in reply, England have got off to a flyer. They're 173 for two. Wally Hammond has 118 of those. He's unbeaten at stumps on, on evening one. So they're only 30 runs behind, but a big day, but a relatively conventional day given how many overs they would play in that era. Day two was a rest day because it was a Sunday. So they came back on Monday morning, and that's where my interest lies here. In short, England fucking teed off. Uh, Hammond moved to 167 when he was dismissed in just 170 minutes. In walks Stan Worthington at number four and slaps 87. Joe Halfstaff makes 94 in 75 minutes. Walter Robbins strikes 76 with 14 boundaries. Headley Verity whacks 66 not out. And through all of this, they're, they're ticking over at about 91 runs per hour. They add Jesus. 398 runs in the day when Gubby Allen says, enough is enough. We're going to declare at 571 for eight. But despite the fact that India looked cooked and well on their way to an innings defeat, nobody told Vijay Merchant or Mushtaq Ali. By stumps, they were 190 for none. In addition... <laughs> In addition to the 398 runs that England made on the day, this pair of Indian openers with Merchant 79 and Mushtaq 105 at the close hammered 190 runs. I can't work out how many overs they faced, but it's probably going at about a run a ball. They batted for you know the, the, the majority of the final part of the day, which means that all up, 588 runs were scored on day two of that test match, smashing the previous record of 522, which was scored at Lords in 1922, Nobody has overtaken them as number one and number two. The most this century was when Sri Lanka hit 509 against Bangladesh at Colombo in 2002. 
just so we're clear on what actually happened in this test match, for reasons that aren't entirely clear in the scorecard, it was only a three-day affair. On the third and final day, India moved to 390 for five, declared when they shook hands, and VJ Merchant also made a century. But, yeah, slightly maddening that it was a three-day match and they didn't get to push it all the way mm. to its conclusion because that was beautifully set up. But, yeah, 588 runs in a day. No matter how you rationalise it with respect to, you know, maybe they played 120 overs on the day, it is still a shitload of runs. I mean, the reason it'll never be overtaken is... We only play 90 a day now in not order even. to reach 588. Well, not even exactly. In theory, if you played 90 in a day, that needs a team or it needs uh, needs a game to go at 6.53 runs and over, which would never happen. So I think this, this, this falls into the category of a record that will never be broken. 588 runs on the 27th of July, 1936, between England and India at Old Trafford. How's about it, Max Eaton? I, I reckon that's pretty plausible because if... You do occasionally get those days, right? You get an Adam Gilchrist double or the Nathan mm. Astle double or the, you know, the Voges and Marsh 400 partnership. You get a couple of players on a flat track who are really in and they go for it and maybe they do put on 400 in quick time. That still leaves another 180 runs that someone else needs to get, <laughs> you know, on the same day. <laughs> so you can have that freakish, aggressive joint effort but it then needs uh, like a shade of freedy to come in afterwards and just go to town as well so yeah even if you have the full 90 overs i I can't see how anybody's going to get close right so next up jeff here we've got a triple header on 428 Stephen frith crisp and crunch and Nick Marple. We're going to start with Stephen. Jeff, you're going to start with Stephen, who pledged in Euros. Mm-hmm. And the clue was, in memory of a boyhood hero. In memory of my boyhood hero, 428. Um, it could almost have been Mark Taylor, who made 426 runs in the Test match at Peshawar, not 428, when he was out for 92 in the second inning, so nearly got membership of that club with a triple hundred and a, another hundred in the same match. So far, it's only Gooch and Sangakara who were mentioned on the index list last week. Lara's the only other one to go past 400 runs in a test, but, well, to reach 400 in a test, but he, he did that in one innings, not two. So it's not going to be that. I doubt it's going to be Cyril Washbrook's batting average. I don't think he's probably anyone's boyhood hero anymore. Um, it's, it's, it's not going to be Matthew Wade's cap number because if Matthew Wade is your boyhood hero, you're about 14 and there are serious questions over your decision-making. <laughs> <laughs> Curiously, who made 428 runs in a series? Small handful of players, including Mark Taylor and Kumar Sankakara. A little bit of number wing oh, for you there. Someone who fits the bill as a boyhood hero, though, as ever, as has come up on this show any number of times, DK Lilly. And there is a moment, there is a tie in the comeback summer of 1979. Great book, The Comeback Summer, you should buy it. After the World Series War, when the Australian board has patched things up with Kerry Packer and they both want a very full schedule and they come up with the tri-series of day-night, one-day internationals. Weird sort of series because Australia keep beating the West Indies, but they don't make the finals because they keep losing to England. And then when the two visiting teams play the finals... Uh, England gets smashed by the West Indies who sort of wake up and and they're ready to go at that point. But there is a match during that series which is a memorable one. Super old school one day international stuff. Andy Roberts, Michael Holding, Joel Garner, Collis King bowling. So presumably everything was about shoulder height. Alan Border, 17 off 40 balls. Greg Chappell, 24 from 83 balls. (laughs) 
and they get all the way up to 176 in their 50 overs. In the context uh, of that, Ian Chappell's run of all 63 was probably God mode striking. And then Lily's the one who makes 176 defendable. He comes out, knocks over Greenwich and Haynes cheaply. And then at the end of the innings when Derek Murray's almost getting West Indies home, gets them within eight runs of the target, Lily comes on and wipes out Garner and holding the last two wickets uh, without the score moving to win by seven. So that was four for 28 for DK Lily, And that's my first bid to you, Stephen, that that might have been uh, a match you watched as a, a young child and thought, Lily, that's who I want to be. Yeah, I like it. A low-scoring one-day international from an era when, when one-day cricket mattered an awful lot. I wouldn't doubt that could be a contender. Crispin Crunch also for 28 in AUD for him. I was looking at John Snow's cap, but I thought, well, we've already done a cap today. Let's save John for another show. We've never really dug deep into Snow's career. We should at some stage. 428's been made in a day five times. I thought I'd look at the runs in a day after doing that previous answer. Five times 428's been struck, uh, including uh, once in 1907 uh, when South Africa were visiting uh, England at Lords and Gilbert Jessup twatted 93 from 75 balls in that day. But... I couldn't look past the fact that, that there has been a 428 made in first-class cricket, the seventh highest score of all time, by a player I'd never heard of before, which, as I learnt more and more about this, makes a lot of sense. So let's try this on for size. A first-class game uh, in February 1974 between Sindh and Baluchistan at the Karachi National Stadium. Sindh is one of four provinces in Pakistan and, and the southwest is where uh, where Karachi is. That's why it was their home ground and their home game. Bless um, me, and Father, the ho- for I have sinned. <laughs> and the host did pretty well with the ball, bowling out the visitors for 93 in just 45 overs, you know, doing it pretty easily. But it was after that when they really went to work. Indeed, they scored nearly 10 times the total of their opposition. We'll come to that in a second. At Stumps on day one, they're already 186 for two. At that stage, Aftar Balok was 44 not out. Press fast forward 24 hours. By Stumps day two, they've made their way to 642 for three. So a massive day on the tools there. Aftab's now up to 326 not out. You would think that would be sufficient. You would think they'd, they'd, be, they'd, they'd be satisfied and they mm-hmm. would bowl out Baluchistan the following day, wrap it up in three days, play some golf, put their feet up. Nope, nope, they would bat on. And Aftab ended up making 428. He was the fifth man out when the score was 828. Uh, he was there for 584 minutes and he was aged just 20 years at this point. And he only struck 25 fours, which is one of the only numbers on the scorecard. And it really stands out because that means he ran 328 of the 428. Jeff, wow. we, we did this calculation a couple of years ago with David Warner in his 335 and tried to work out how many runs he was out in the middle for and how many he ran. But off his own bat, 328 runs, that must be the most ever in an innings. I can't imagine in any of the other quadruple centuries or Lara's 501 yep. that more than 328 were runs that actually had to be added from going between the wickets. Also cashing in in that innings was the young Java Mandad who smacked an even century before he was run out. And they ended up rolling the visitors for 283 in the second dig to win by an innings and 575. That had me look up out there at Ishmael Khan's table. Uh, this comes sixth in that. Of course, Derek Ishmael Khan were, were, the, were the biggest margin 
margin of all time in innings and 851 runs. They were just four runs behind England in 1938 at the Oval uh, after Hutton's triple uh, when they beat Australia by an innings and 579. Now, back to Aftab for a moment here. Um, He'd already played for Pakistan as a 16-year-old four years earlier. He's the fourth youngest to this day to ever play Test cricket at 16 years and 221 days. He was a prodigy. But he made 25 runs on that test debut and was immediately dropped. Then four years later, he makes his 4-2-8, gets back in the national team two years after that as a 22-year-old, plays one test match against the West Indies, the fearsome West Indies, makes 12 and an unbeaten 60 in the second innings. He's dropped again and never plays again. Never gets a one-day international later in his career. His only two test matches are played at age 16 and 22. Did not that much wrong. Has a test batting average in the 40s. Between times made a quadruple century and never got the opportunity to represent his country again. He finished with over 9,000 first-class runs at 42, 20 centuries, 223 wickets as well uh, with his offspin. And he did an interview this year talking about this to the Pakistani press. And he thinks that, that politics are what did him in. He said here, I was soon to realise that a strong lobby was doing their best to malign my reputation, which they did through gossip and the print media. I was informed by a source that a Rolpindi cricketer created a story where I, I had invited two or three young girls back to my hotel room and I was also spotted throwing food in a toilet. It was quite bizarre as the family I invited were my neighbours in Karachi who had recently moved to Islamabad. It was simply catching up with friends and not what was assumed. <laughs> well, look, I, I always say if somebody's throwing food in a toilet, that's it. That, that's, a, that's a deal breaker <laughs> it's, it's for me. A, You're out. The thing is, he doesn't dispute the fact that food was thrown in the toilet. Right. He disputes the fact that a couple of young girls were back in the hotel room getting up to no good. On the 428, he says as follows, amidst threat from the opposition that if I didn't declare, they would walk out and there'd be no match. That's why he got himself out. I can assure you my innings didn't attract much media attention from TV or radio, and it was limited to just a normal match report. As far as I know, there was not a single photograph taken during the match, which was even more surprising because it was played at a test ground. I feel for this bloke. I feel as though, I mean, uh, Aftag Bollock sits on a list with Lara, Hanif Muhammad, Bradman, Ponsford, a couple of others, Archie McLaren. And there, there is he who played just the two test matches mm. and seemingly was done over because they thought he had, they thought he was up to no good off the field for flushing food down the toilet. I'm going to leave it at that. Some, 428. Let us know, Crispy. Something about it doesn't entirely stack up, I've got to say. Um, <laughs> was there any, yeah, I, I was going to ask if there was any, any sense, any word on whether after Bullock was a knob because, you know, if you make big scores, there's always that risk that you might be. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to stop a lot of players from continuing to be picked. Maybe he wasn't enough of a knob. Maybe maybe the Pakistan yeah. selection committee wanted more knobbishness in order to get people into the test team. And maybe he was just too nice. Maybe he was flushing food down the toilet to feed fish, you know. We can't judge. <laughs> Uh, Crispin Crunch, uh, I believe you are the winner of the Brick Lane Brewing Slab as well for that. Thanks for giving me the chance to tell that story. That's not why you've won the slab, but, Jeff, uh, tell him all about it. The hat has spoken, Crispy. You get to give someone a case of beers, a bad case of loving beers. You get to give them 24 cans in a box. That's what a slab is. That's what a case is. That's how it works from the lovely people at Brick Lane. They brew all kinds of beers and if you're say in Melbourne and you're coming out of lockdown and you're worried about getting 
too affected um, by getting on the sauce. You can go for the low alcohol options as well. Did you know that industry reporting suggests that 65% of Australians who are of drinking age want good, low or no alcohol options, but they also want the full delicious taste? Well, do I have good news for you. The full beer experience without compromise. It's the Sidewinder. It's a low alcohol Hazy pale ale, so it's a delicious kind of beer, not like a weird watery lager, gross sort of thing. It's 1.1%, so you can have that and be largely unaffected. If you if you wanted to be affected by it, you would have to work really, really hard, put it that way. So, But it's all about the flavour. It's all about the, the full taste of something that has the deliciousness that you want without necessarily making you affected by it, which is what... A lot of people want. If you do want to be affected by it, there are many other brick lanes that you can buy that are a lot higher than 1.1%. I had one of their IPAs that's about 7% the other day, and let me tell you, it was quite effective. <laughs> uh, but bricklanebrewing.com, that's where they are. Social media handles are in the links. And if you do pick up a Brick Lane piece of... I was going to say merchandise, but it's not merchandise. It's, you can it's buy the product. merchandise. You can you can you buy can. the you can buy the hoodie. Now that lockdown's over, you, um, you, you might want to go out and buy a Brick Lane hoodie. You might, um, but yeah, if you, if you if you pick up a Brick Lane to enjoy, take a photo, pop it on a an internet channel, and send it to us, um, so we can all enjoy it with you. Tremendously exciting that Brick Lane will be able to open their tap house uh, where they operate at Queen Victoria Market four nights a week and uh, there'll be that chance to introduce yourself to them uh, as we will be doing, Jeff, uh, through the uh, cricketing summer. Now, Jeff, you can get out. Mm-hmm. You're not far from Queen Vic Market. You can walk down there. Yep. Uh, and in my case, I'll be back in Melbourne I reckon I'll be back in Melbourne on the 24th of November, the way things are tracking. So uh, that being the case, one of my first stops will be Brick Lane and I, I can't wait to uh, to enjoy uh, their beer through the course of the summer. BrickLaneBrewing.com, thanks for their support of the final word. Uh, Jeff, we have one more number from our triple header on 428. It's Nick also pledging in pounds with a clue, a slightly unwanted record. A slightly unwanted record. This this racked me, Nick. I went up and down the scales. I, I thought inside the box, outside the box. Um, I, I, I looked at various spreadsheets and lists that I had. I pondered it. I thought, what is an unwanted record? It's, it's got to be to do with things like being successful in teams that lose or... Do, uh, doing it's it's, it's got to be to do with success that doesn't ultimately get you there or or having more dropped catches than someone or more ducks or, or but that would be more than slightly unwanted i thought i had i had a moment where i thought i struck gold adam i thought hang on unwanted record i know a lot about one of them <laughs> if we go back to 2015 hashtag world record rogers when chris rogers was on track to make the most dismissed half-centuries in consecutive innings in Test cricket, a fate that he duly met when he was out for 95 in the Cardiff Test, registering his seventh dismissed 50 in a row. That was a record, and it could be a slightly unwanted record because you'd like to make hundreds, Mm. um, but you'd still be happy to make 50s. And I thought, 428, I thought, if we add together seven half-centuries, including a 90, we're going to be pretty close to 428. Yes. And so I did. But I was wrong oh. because he not only made 95 in Cardiff, but he also made 95 in Sydney a couple of innings before that, which I'd forgotten that 50 was so high. So when you add it all together, you get 482, not 428. So close. So close. Do you, so do you, think, it, do you think it's going to be one of those ones, Jeff, where you're going to allege that the pledger's got the number wrong? 
No, I don't think so. Um, okay. I, I, I would I would not traduce Nick like that. I wish that were it because I would feel very clever. 428. So I looked at some other things. It's nowhere near to being the most runs in a losing series, although Kane Williamson did make 428 beautiful runs in Australia in 2016 when New Zealand got smashed. This isn't to do with an unwanted record, but in terms of a record, when I looked at everyone who's taken four for 28 in test cricket, Here's what's interesting. It's happened 18 times. Nine of those times are from left armers. I wonder if that's the analysis that has the highest percentage of being taken by left armers <laughs> because nowhere near half of the bowlers are left arm in cricket. Yeah. But half of the four for 28s are left armers. George Hurst, Derek Underwood, John Lever, Nicky Boye, Daniel Vittori, Chaminda Vass, Mitchell Stark, Neil Wagner, Trent Bolt. Nine left armors among the 18 four for 28. I'm going to encourage someone to dis- disprove you. If someone can find yeah. something better than that, let Jeff know. Find an analysis with more than 50%, you know, with, with say, a cutoff. Maybe it's got to be more than 10. There's got to be more than 10 instances of the analysis, something like that. What a great use of your time that would be. <laughs> it was. It will be. Someone will do it. Sam Ashworth will do it. Someone will do it. Then I thought, mate, well... Is it to do with losing? I thought no one's played enough matches to have lost 428 times. But what about teams? And I was looking up the team records and what they've done, and it struck me that India have 428 one-day international losses. And I thought, oh, is that the most? And so I looked up everyone, and it's not the most because Sri Lanka have 431. So it's only just not the most. And then I thought, hang on, this pledge came in probably middle of July, and it's in pounds which leads me to think that it must have come in shortly after Sri Lanka lost their one-day series in England. Since then, Sri Lanka have lost three and won three matches against India and South Africa collectively, which means that before those series that happened later in July and afterwards, Sri Lanka would have just gone to 428 ODI losses and would have taken the record from India, who would have had 427 at the point this pledge came in, Sri Lanka would have just pipped <laughs> India to have the most ODI losses in history. After the series those two teams played, Sri Lanka stayed ahead at 430 to 428, and now they're at 431. But that would have been the moment when they took the lead for the first time in ODI losses on 428, a slightly unwanted record. That is perfect, Jeff. Well done. Well worked out. There's no way I would get that right. It takes uh, someone with... Uh, <laughs> That, that, that sees the bigger picture like you to, to find an answer like that. Good on you, Nick, and thanks to everybody who's contributed a new number uh, this week. It's easy to do so, Jeff, and to help to what we do week in, week out. It is. Go to patron.com slash the final word. Uh, the benefits include you can help us keep making the show, you can feel good about yourself, you can get on the Discord channel where all of the other listeners are hanging out and having a good time and chatting about the cricket and things like that. You can DM us random thoughts that you've come up with. And you can have a what, like a twenty-five percent chance, like a two, two in eight sort of chance, like a one in four, one in five chance of getting to give someone a slab, including yourself, if you want a slab. So you know, free beers, feeling good, and being part of a community. Uh, what more could you want? Yeah, and we're going to have some live shows this summer in Australia. If that if that's an incentive, I'm not quite sure how we'll do that with our patrons, but there'll be some incentive there. I can't quite work out. Uh, on, on, on the fly, I'm not going to give you an exact figure, but whatever it is, you'll be at benefit having been a patron on that front too. I'll give a shoulder rub to every patron. That is, well. that is well. Okay, Jeff, let's take a break. Yeah. When we return, revisits and some that we got right on previous shows. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast.
podcast the final word. Jeff, I love it when our relationship with Lord's Tabs inspires people to do unusual things on behalf of the organisation. Um, I haven't even told the Lord's Tabs about this yet. An email from Sam Hills came in this week. Hello, chaps. I've recently moved to Bournemouth from Yorkshire. Upon hearing that Adam has links to Bournemouth, I considered that it may be great fun to get a final word team together to enter the 2022 Dorset Plain Pool. Could raise some money for the Lord's Tabs. I'm sure there'll be plenty of final word folks keen to be involved. I had a look at the Plain Pool. We are definitely, definitely doing this next year, Jeff. You might be here. Who's to know? Are we? It's pretty straightforward. I've never pulled a plane. All you do, I I think you have a team. I, I didn't quite... Uh, didn't quite. I, I should have taken note of how many people are involved in it, but a team of people grab a rope and you collectively pull a plane. And for doing it, it it's like a competition. I don't know quite how competition works either. But is it a race? Do you, it's like time trials? So there are multiple planes all with, in a row? With the benefit of hindsight, maybe I should have watched a bit on YouTube, but I didn't. What I, mm-hmm. what I know for sure is that next year, we're going pl- to pull a plane and Sam's going to lead the team we're going to be involved. We're going to get a final word team together. Mel Shawley, of course, has links back to Bournemouth. So we've got at least one person who will join up. There'll be others. Bournemouth is where my mum was born, where my family were uh, through, well, much of the 20th century. It's, uh, it's where my grandfather went um, after he was let out of prison in Wolverhampton after he was court-martialed after, well after the war when he decided to um, go AWOL in 1945. Not a great time to go AWOL yeah. in 1945. Like, the war's done, man. Like, what were you thinking? Mm. But he found my grandmother, changed his name, went bankrupt several times. Um, finally, the military caught up with him uh, with his assumed name and they, they chuck him in prison in, in Wolverhampton in the 50s. And then he went back home to, to Bournemouth and about five years later, my mum was born. So, there you go. Good deal. Probably better off going to jail for a little bit than going to war. Just well, it was it was after the war, wasn't it? It was mid fifties. He he'd done his service in mm. the military for fourteen years, and then again, I can't understand why would he be decided to have checked out at that stage. Anyway, it's a question for my dead grandfather, not for you. The point here is that Lords Taverners, who we are proud to be associated with, they've been around for seven decades, and they're inspiring all sorts mm. of wonderful behaviour and activity uh, from the cricket community, from the final word community. If you want to be involved month to month, lordstaverners.co.uk, that's in the show notes to make a contribution. But I want everyone to turn their eye to the Dorset Plane Pool 2022. We're going to be there for the final word. Thank you, Sam Hills, for the idea. On the front foot, uh, making that move down south and immediately thinking about how he can raise money for this fantastic organisation, lordstaverners.co.uk. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. I've got about 25 minutes until we have to go. Let's put the foot down, Jeff. First revisit from Joel Emmonson. Uh, we said Bert Vance for 177. We were not right, but you have got a better answer. No, no, we were right. The thing is that Joel Emmonson oh. had two 177s. Oh, my Joel apologies. The, the guy who had 177 and then 177 for a different thing for a different time. So Bert Vance, 77 oh. runs from one over, correct. And the other 177 I finally worked out, which Joel's trying, been trying to get us to solve for about two years, was it's a combination of two numbers, 177. You'll be disappointed you didn't get this. Dean Jones made 77 and 100 <laughs> in the Colombo <laughs> test. Um, in 80-whatever-it-was. No, no, 92. On Murali's debut. Lots of rain, trying to create a result. Australia, 247. Sri Lanka, 258 declared. Australia, 296 declared. Sitting 286 to win. 
It ended 136 for two in a draw, but Dean Jones, 77 and 100, makes 177 in the test match. That's your other one, Joe. Yeah, that was like two tests before they dropped him for life. Whatever. Totally normal behaviour there from the selection panel, yeah. ending Dean Jones' test career when they did. Uh, next revisit, 192, Max Hanlon. We said it was the one-day partnership versus Bangladesh for Australia. I'm not quite sure what I mean by my own notes there, Jeff, but you've, you've got stuck into it. The record, it was Australia's record partnership in a one-day against Bangladesh in honour of the cancelled tour of Bangladesh. Well, that's ah, yes. at least what I said it was, but it wasn't. Max said it related to the last game played that I had a big interest in before the curse of COVID cancelled cricket. A game that I wish I was at, but I spent that night of the long weekend dancing and routinely checking the cricket scores 100 kilometres <laughs> from Melbourne at a wedding. Uh, I think it was at a wedding. Maybe it wasn't at a wedding. Uh, anyway, he said, I hope that's enough to determine the game. And it was 192 because in the T20 World Cup final on the 8th of March, which was the last major event before COVID shut down Australia, Australia did not make 192. They made 184. But Elisa Healy hit five sixes, made 75 from 39 balls, which is a strike rate of 192.3. Very, very nicely done. Uh, Jeff, the next one is Dan Price, our friend Dan Price, player at the match for the final at 11. 282 is his number. I talked about Mizbar in 2016 from memory, Jeff, but we weren't right, and there's a clue. Yes, Dan says it was about runs in 2016. Um, he said it was astonishing because every time I went to the ground, he was always batting and hitting the ball so cleanly. Small, wristy batsman who keeps wicket when allowed. So I felt we were quite similar. Oh, Dan. Um, he won us lots of games and is still one of my favourites ever, even if he has moved teams now. Also, the story for now is how all the runs ended in tears, sort of, at the avenue. And as soon as <laughs> that came up, I knew that Adam would have this answer. Yeah, Ben Duckett, Jeff, who we first came across in, in 2015 at that Northants game that we talk about all the time. He made 50 from 70 balls against... Siddle, Cummins, Watson, Mitchell Marsh, pretty decent attack for a tour game. He finished that year with 1,000 runs at 53 and kind of looked next cab off the rank. Then the year after, at the start of 2016, he made 282 against Sussex at Wantage Road. I remember reading about that innings uh, on the plane on the way out to England that year and, and, and the, the consensus was that this guy was very, very close to England's selection and, and so it was. By the end of 2016, he'd made 1,338 runs at 58, so two great years in a row, nine centuries across those two campaigns. Gets picked in Bangladesh for England on his test debut, makes a half century, but two more tests in, in, in India and it all kind of falls away and he's dropped from the team. He was near enough though. Uh, you know, in 2017, he went back to Northampton and made 800 runs and made three more centuries. He got on the Lions tour in 17-18. He poured a pint over Jimmy's head, as we know, at the Avenue, um, which prompted one of my favourite nights of the 2017 Ashes where with Will McPherson and, and Johnny Liu, uh, we went there in theory for Will to write a nightclub review for the Times of the Avenue, given that's where Johnny Bairstow had got in trouble with the headbutting incident and then subsequently Ben Duckett. But upon our arrival, it became clear that we weren't all going to get in because Johnny had a pair of not flip-flops but kind of like open-toed shoes or something like that. Birkenstocks, I think they're called, aren't they? Sounds something right. Something like I that. Anyway, they, they weren't appropriate shoes for a nightclub. So we had to tell the nightclub owner, who will have been in touch with on email, that, I don't know, that's Will McPherson from The Times – 
this guy's writing the nightclub review and Will introduced himself as Jonathan Liu, who was his friend with him and me as me. And we went in there and went behind the velvet rope for the whole night as, um, as Johnny Liu was given the tour and given the, the, go- the golden ticket, basically. Little did they know it was actually Will writing the review and I took a photo of Will uh, on the dance floor with two, two rum and cokes in his hand, which was probably my first published photo in a newspaper, uh, which appeared later that week. So a fun bit of, bit of a diversion there during the Perth Test of 2017. Back to Ben Ducker. He had a bad 2018, uh, so he moved clubs to knots. Um, he's kind of back, I reckon. You know, he made... 928 runs in 2019, did well in the Bob Willis Trophy, got an England T20 debut, but this year not quite as well. Notts did well, but he only made 705 runs and only made one century, and thus he's not on this Lions tour um, to Australia, unfortunately. But, yeah, he, he did get a Guernsey in the Stokes replacements squad when um, half the, well, when two of the teams were wiped out with COVID. Didn't play, but you can see that at age 26, they, they still want to keep him relatively close because, as, as Dan details, he's a precocious talent, very capable player, and I'm sure he'll have uh, quite a substantial international career ahead of him towards the second half of his 20s. From Ben Duckett to someone who should have ducked it, Simon Butcher's 383 was about an Australian captain being bounced out, and we tried a few things, but none of them seemed quite right. Yeah, and we've got some additional information here saying uh, that Simon enjoyed hearing about the contrasting halves of Botham's career uh, and the details of the brilliant Adelaide Oval tests from yesteryear. Jeff, you did mention the name of a man in question here, but then moved on straight away. For a worrying moment, I thought I might have misremembered this happening. These pledges are hard enough without them not being real. <laughs> I dug out a Dusty Ashes 2009 DVD to make sure. Thankfully, this definitely did happen again and in the real world. Well, that was pretty much giving it to me on a plate. And I had forgotten about this one, Ricky Ponting, who I had mentioned saying I don't remember him ever being bounced out in, in an Ashes contest, but he was out hooking against Graham Onions in the third test at Edgebaston. Peculiar sort of test in that it's raining so they don't actually start the match until the final session of day one. Mm. Ponting still chooses to bat because he's Ponting. And Australia what go I, beautifully from the start. What I got brought Shane in. Watson... Yeah. Uh, just after, yeah, they've just dropped Phil Hughes at this point. Um, so Shane Watson's opening for the first time. He smacks 62. Kadish gets out, but they're 126 for one after that final session on the first day. Graham Onions gets smashed around. Um, three overs for 21 with five boundaries. Next morning, Andrew Strauss gives him the ball straight away. And first ball of the day, he blows Shane Watson's front pad off <laughs> in uh, a sign of things to come. <laughs> then he bowls Hussey first ball, who leaves one that decks back a bit and takes the left-handers off stump. Hattrick ball, bowls a bumper uh, at Michael Clark's gloves, not too far off, but doesn't get the wicket. During the next eight overs, Ponting goes past Alan Border as Australia's leading scorer in test cricket. He's looking good. He's playing the on-drive, um, looking settled, and then he gets the bumper again, a little bit wide of off stump, tries a hook shot, top edge. He's out for 38 after 38.3 overs, which was Simon Butcher's number, 383. Very good, very good. I remember that test match uh, on the basis that it was taking place during Labor Party National Conference in Sydney, and I was working like 20-hour days and trying to stay just in touch with what was going on. 
uh, and not, not doing much a good job of it. But having just returned from England, where I'd been at the first two tests at Cardiff and Lords, I wish I'd spent more time there that year. In hindsight, it was a great series, 09. It's often underrated, I think, because of how good 05 is. We don't sort of talk about 09, which was a cracker. And well documented, I should say, by Dan Bredig in his uh, book, Whitewash to Whitewash. Jaya Prakash is the other 383 we're revisiting today. I can't remember why we were talking about Adelaide in 1928, but we were. Uh, Jai Prakash uh, wanted to tell us that it actually refers to a number in one-day international cricket. And we have options here. We have options. Uh, the first, uh, unsurprisingly, goes back to that bilateral series between India and Australia in, in 2013. Jeff, I feel like we, found, we find a reason to reference that series at least once a month on Storytime. It was a wild series, high scoring, crazy scoring. Uh, and in the seventh and final one day, uh, India made 383 for six with Rohit Sharma reaching 209, which was significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, he hit 16 sixes, so overtaking the record set by Watto when he hit his 15 against Bangladesh, uh, what would have been a couple of years earlier. It was the first of Rohit's two double centuries. It came from just 158 balls. But when you break it down, his first century, 114 deliveries. His second century in 42 which was thoroughly in, in keeping with the spirit of that series. And yeah, when you look at it as well, at that point in time, there'd only been two double centuries in, in one-day cricket, Sachin and Saywag. Now there's eight. So over the last eight years, it's been a fairly regular occurrence. The other option here is that Kumar Sangakkara took 300. Well, he's, he's got three Rohit Sharma rather than two. Oh, he's got three, has he? Sorry, I thought he had two. Well, there you go. Mm. Another option is that Kumar Sangakkara took 383 catches in one-day cricket. You add the 99 stumpings, and he has 482 dismissals all up, which is the most for a wicketkeeper in ODIs, 10 more than Gilchrist. And in 30, Dhoni with 444, which includes 123 stumpings, which is quite remarkable when you consider um, the gap there with, with other wicketkeepers over the years. But there's two options for you, Jaya Prakash. It's either 383 with Rohit Sharma teeing off or a tribute to Kumar Sengakara and his gloves, 383 catches in one day. As. And it is curious that we still kind of think of Sankakara as a part-time wicketkeeper. Oh, yeah, he kept wicket for a mm-hmm. while at the start of his test career and then stopped. He's the leading dismissal creator in one-day international cricket history. Uh, 568 from Luke Reynolds. I said Glenn McGrath's analysis in Bridgetown in 1995. Luke says, it relates to the best performance in an art that I've seen live at the MCG that was not performed by the greatest artist of that art. At this stage, this man was at the peak of his powers. It really was when he should have been picked in the test team. So no one's taken five for 58 in a test at the MCG, so it must be a first-class number. And art at the MCG, it's got to be leg spin, right? And it's got to be someone who bowls leg spin who's not Shane Warne, who is the greatest artist of the art. When he should have been picked, so it has to be Bryce McGain in 2007-08 in the Shield season. The leg spinner ends up fourth on the wickets table with 38 wickets. His best was 5 for 68, Luke's number at the MCG. Against Tassie, goes through the top seven, gets Michael Divinuto, Travis Burt, Dan Marsh and Sean Klingleffer before rounding it out with the big German disco Ben Hilfenhaus. Uh, sets up a win that helps take Victoria to the final that year. And he finally gets picked in the test team, but not until 2009, a couple of years later. Ricky Ponting hates spinners, so 
Bryce McGain has a bad one bad innings um, and is marked to never play again because apparently, you know, Shark Keller scoring runs off you means that um, you sh- you're not good enough to play Test cricket. Yeah. So <laughs> that was that for Bryce McGain, but the five for uh, sixty eight was a. a a strong moment for him. Yeah, you got a feel for Bryce McGain. You look back at his career and you see him going at eight and over in a test match and uh, and, and all the rest and him missing the plane and, and all that went with that. A bit of a disaster after a very interesting career, which Jared Kimber's done a great job of documenting in a number of pieces about him. 2-1-2, Darren Smith. Uh, Daniel uh, answered this one. Uh, Darren came back and said he's miles behind on podcasts and only caught up with the episode uh, where his number was discussed. He enjoyed listening to the variety of solutions that Dan offered for 212, which were varied, but the number was far less interesting. I wasn't going to do this, uh, but I, I had a change of heart when I realised that two, I, I, th- I saw 212 and thought DOB, right? And then I thought, no, I won't do a DOB. I've already done one of those. However, in, in looking it up anyway, it's worth noting that George Street war cap 2-1-2 for England in just one test match. He was a wicketkeeper from Sussex uh, between 1909 and 1923. He was very much a wicketkeeper rather than a keeper batsman. He only averaged 17 across 197 first-class games. Nothing wrong with that um, when you consider um, what wicketkeepers were then, which, you know, kind of going to the point of Luke Reynolds before. They were artists, weren't they, wicketkeepers, before they were uh, batters who could who could put on the gloves. Um he got a test match when, in 1922-23, uh, the first choice keeper for England, uh, who at the time was Walter Livesey, broke a finger. And they called for him to get the boat down to South Africa. But they used a sub-keeper for two tests in between. Then he was hurried into the team for the fourth match. It didn't quite work out. He made um, four and seven not out, weirdly, opening the batting. Um, he, he didn't get a catch, but he did uh, snaffle a stumping off Valence Jupp, who was the spinner he, he'd kept to for Sussex for, for so many years. And when he returned in 1923, as the incumbent England wicketkeeper, he had a brilliant season for his county, taking 97 catches, the most ever. Um, tragically, though, it would be his final year because in April 1924, or just before the, the new season was about to start, he died in a motorcycle accident. He was going too fast. He, he tried to avoid a lorry ended up running into a wall that was ruled as an accidental death at the inquest. So he's another one of these players who who we were discussing earlier in the show who missed much of his best cricket due to the First World War. And he didn't play in 1919 either because he still had yet to be demobbed. But yes, he was a war veteran, a wicketkeeper, England cap 2-1-2, George Street. Thank you, Adam. Uh, A mini DOB in the revisits. Uh, 266 from Richard Jones. That is what led us to talk about Bill Ponsford and the Knob Index for triple century (laughs) makers, Uh, Richard said. Always good to hear about the great Pudding Ponsford, who, although a prolific run scorer, I don't think could be categorised as a knob. I have spent many happy hours sitting in his stand. My number relates to a player whose name captured my imagination when I was first becoming interested in the game, probably underrated, rarely comes up in discussions, but one of your contributors is often heard to give him praise. The number 266, each digit can be taken separately and the final two can be separate and together. Well, this immediately rang a bell. I thought, who is a contributor of ours who is known for giving praise about someone unfashionable? Ian Chappell talking about Ian Redpath, surely. Surely the fact Name that you get a more Redders iconic story. combination. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it's unless it's a Les Favell story, um, it's it's a Redders story as well. So two six six the number that can be separate and together. Well, Ian Redpath played sixty six 
tests. So there's his 66. 266, he hit two sixes in his test career, meaning two, six, six. This was when he made 103 against the West Indies at Adelaide in 1977. Pretty good bowling attack. Andy Roberts, Michael Holding, um, Mm. Lance Gibbs, who I'm going to assume is who he was hitting the sixes off because... Up until this point, and this is very late in Redpath's career, it's his 50-something test match probably, he's never hit a six before. And then he's Uh, going on towards 100 here and feeling pretty good and he pops one over the fence for the first time in his entire career and it feels so good that he immediately does it again. Hits the second six of his career and then that's it. Shuts up shop, never hits another six again. But two, six, six has to be for Richard Jones, has to be Ian Redpath. What a great note to leave the revisits. We've got a bunch still uh, in the pipeline. Uh, Rosie Piper, Thilo Fob, Brian Strain, Chris Dobbins, Amelia Vine, Dan Walsh, Shane Fagg, Tony King, Bernie Prins. Hopefully, we'll solve all of your numbers between now and the next time we record on Storytime. However, in saying that, that's quite a lot. Hopefully, we'll we'll solve some of them because a few of those are quite tricky, Jeff. Look, we will be amongst them over the next week or so while we're juggling the Daily Show as well. Send us a number, patron.com slash the final word. It's fun and you get to make us feel good. Let's do a few quick confirmations on the way out the door here, Jeff. We've got a 275 from James Philbrook. Uh, that was the partnership between Tammy Beaumont and Sarah Taylor. We finally got there, James. Uh, thanks for the shout-out, and bingo. Not a particularly niche one, just two of my favourite players doing epic things. Lovely to meet you as well, James, the other week down there at Canterbury. Douglas Wardell Johnson's 490 was indeed Kane Williamson's 49 in the World Test Championship final. Uh, Michael Fallon's $10.45 was Adam Voges' season shield average of 104.5. Simply amazing, says Michael, and I still can't quite believe how WA didn't win the shield that year with the runs that he, Klinger and S. Marsh made that season. If I remember correctly, when I was trying to follow the tour game and start of that West Indies tour on Twitter, it led me to discovering Adam, one of the better Twitter follows I've made. Thank you, Michael. That's really nice. In turn, probably how you found the final word. Very cool. Uh, Christopher Stock, 532. Uh, Bapu bowling 32 overs for five runs. Great to hear the story behind the numbers come to life. Now to work on the next pledge. Nice one, Chris. And last but certainly not least, Peter Hulton with his 478. And he says that Daniel was indeed right with his pledge relating to Mushtaq Ahmed's first class wicket tally for Sussex. What a bowler he was. It was an interesting time to be a Sussex supporter. While no one would say the investment in youth was a great success, there were signs of hope with Tom Haynes, a standout performer with the bat, and Jack Carson, a promising spinner. With some guys and a better overseas performer, Travis Head hardly covered himself in glory. I remain optimistic the next few years will be better. Well, let's hope so, Peter, because uh, everyone loves a, a day by the seaside down at Hove, not least Jeff and I. Um, this has been the final word story time. Uh, thank you to everybody who's contributed uh, to, to make this show what it is week in, week out. We really, truly love making it and we'll do so uh, across the course of the T20 World Cup. We're not going to necessarily make weekly shows. We probably should have mentioned this earlier, but we might take a pause on the weekly shows and just have one show collectively combined uh, whilst we're making um, 20 shows in 22 days. It might be uh, might be sound to make some of our story time apps include a bit of uh, uh, the issues of the week as well. But, but we'll, we'll work 
work that out as we go and we'll keep you posted on the Discord page if you are there with us and Patreon and all the rest of it. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions and for DC for editing us. Believe me when I say the file that he gets sent from us and the file that's published are often very different for he has a lot of work to do, especially with story time and we've got many, many false starts on our stories and the numbers can get a wee bit confusing uh, to Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards at BPP as well. Follow their work at badproducerproductions.com So the Lord's Taverners, who we have a proud association with and the fact that we're now going to pull a plane together, all the better, lordstaverners.co.uk. And Jeff, to you, enjoy your first taste of freedom for a long time tomorrow. I hope you have a ripping weekend. You won't be with us on the first daily show because you've got some serious time in the pub uh, booked in and more power to you for it. Oh, the plane pull will blind the weary driver. Yeah, I, I, I need to not be up at 5am recording a podcast on the first day out of lockdown after <laughs> being trapped in my house for four months or whatever it's been. But I will probably end up watching the game anyway because let's be honest uh, with ourselves here. Uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be there. I'll be on the dailies from Monday morning. This has been the final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, thanks for listening. Can't wait to do it all again next week. Have a nice weekend. Bye. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.